Welcome. How are you? All right. I must have made some people mad last week. It's still early. I'll make you mad too. Don't worry. I don't think that's what she meant. That's not what she meant, is it? Hey, uh, want to welcome you back. Uh, if it's your first time here at the bridge. I'm uh, really glad you're here. Scott Jennings is the pastor of marriage and family life here. And, uh, we are in a Wednesday night series called The New Normal, uh, discussing uh, some of the hot topics of our day. Uh, I, was just, I had uh, three different conversations with people out here in the crowd before we got started. Every single one of them was about uh, arguments on the internet, arguments in the comments section. How you you know uh, how do you engage with that? And it's tough. It's definitely tough. So we're trying to share with you the truth of God's word, so that you can answer some of these questions and address some of these issues. And some of you have teenagers who are out at the riot, our student ministry tonight, and they're going and the, in, while, while we've been talking about these issues, they've been addressing them as well. So part of what we're doing is, is we want to equip you to be able to answer their questions and uh, give you references in God's Word to be able to address some of these issues. The first week, Pastor Andy talked about, uh, and he's back this week. We're glad to have him back. Yep, he was visiting his family last week, so um, we're glad to have him here. But the first week, he talked about lordship. And how uh, every, really everything that we talk about here at the church comes down to the question of lordship. So who's the Lord of your life? Because if Jesus isn't the Lord of your life, uh, then he's not affecting every aspect of your life. And most of what we're going to be talking about, either tonight or any other time, you know, if you're not a Christian with Jesus Christ as your Lord, it applies to you because God is sovereign over all. But it doesn't apply to you in the sense of, since we, we as Christians shouldn't expect people that don't have Jesus as their Lord to follow these teachings. Does that make sense? Right? So it comes down to lordship. Uh, last week I talked about gender and sexuality. And uh, I want to do a quick review of that tonight. Uh, because what we're going to be talking about tonight is uh, directly related to those same issues. So here's what God says about gender. There are two. Does anybody know what they are? Male and female. Good. All right. Excellent. Everybody gets a gold star. It's not like uh, what Facebook says, right? Facebook says that there are 56 different varieties of gender. It's not what Planned Parenthood says. Planned Parenthood says that, remember the slide, the gender-bred person that I showed you yesterday? That all of the different aspects of and unique qualities that God has created in us to make us male or female, they, they occur on a sliding scale. That's what Planned Parenthood says. So it's really, according to them, infinitely, uh, there's an infinite number. But God says there's two. Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. I want to talk about one thing really quickly that I didn't get to last week in the area of transgenderism, okay? So just to explain, transgenderism is I'm born physically a male, but I feel like a female, and my emotions are aligned with what would typically be considered a female, 
or vice versa, or a female, and I consider myself male, I feel like a male, right? So then I, I walk out becoming that opposite gender from what I was born, physically. So there may be uh, hormonal treatments involved, and ultimately a lot of folks like uh, Bruce Jenner, and I call him Bruce, go through uh, radical surgery in order to transform their bodies because they feel different from the way that they were born. What, what I would say to that is that Romans 12.2, Paul talks about tra being transformed by the renewing of your mind. And this is a case, this, this transgender issue, I'm not trying to say that it's not a desperate, difficult struggle. I can't imagine what that's like. But we don't change our bodies. We don't transform our bodies. We are to transform our minds. Right? When we're in that sort of struggle, God's Word instructs us to transform our minds, not transform our bodies. Here's what God says on the subject of sexuality. 1 Thessalonians 4, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. And Ephesians 5, 3, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not be even named among you as is proper among saints. Again, this is review of last week real quick. Any activity or action that arouses or awakens sexual desire with anyone other than the man or woman to whom you're married, God calls that sexual immorality. Period. But we need to make sure, as Christians and, and as the church, that we're not simply targeting one type of sexual sin. And typically, that is homosexuality. You'll see lots of folks in the church uh, come out against homosexuality. They'll come out against how being gay is, you know, hopefully they're doing it in a loving way, sharing the truth with love, like I said last week. That's what we need to do, right? But they'll come, you'll see folks come out against homosexuality, how that's wrong, and, and how folks who are struggling in that area, you know, again, desperately need our prayer and our love and God's transforming word to transform their minds but there is lots of other there are lots of other sexual sin there's lots of, and you typically don't see anyone say on facebook or twitter or instagram whatever come out and say you know we need to pray for the fornicators right you don't usually see that we need to pray for and and love share the truth and love with the adulterers we need to pray with, for the lustful. We need to pray for those uh, with, you know, dealing with pornography. You see that sometimes. So again, understand there, there is sexual sin, but we have a tendency as the church now, and I know I'm speaking in broad generalities, but we do. Would you agree? When, when people in the church talk about sexual sin, they typically immediately go to uh, homosexuality. And what you're doing when you do that, 
You're taking the Word of God and you're using it as a lens or a window. And you're holding up the Word of God and you're looking through it to judge another person and how they line up with God's Word. When really what God has designed the Word of God to, to do and how it's supposed to work is as a mirror. So we hold it up and we look at ourselves, right? And make sure that there's no log in our own eye. It's not that we shouldn't help others, other Christians especially, with the splinter that's in their eye, right? But that's what we have a tendency to focus on. And I'll just tell you, I'm going way chasing a rabbit now. The reason that we do that is it's, it's much easier to point out someone else's faults than it is to look at our own. It's hard to do that. But I want to encourage you tonight to, to engage in that and use that scripture as a mirror. So what is moral? What is moral is for two to become one as they leave father and mother and cleave to one another in marriage. Anything other than that is sexually immoral. So in summary, here's what the Bible clearly teaches about gender and sexuality. There are two genders created by, by God, male and female. And any sexual behavior outside the bounds of marriage is an act of rebellion, also known as sin, against God and his created order. Now let me address one other thing really quickly. <clears throat> one of the arguments that you hear uh, for, from folks that are um, pro-homosexual, okay, and when I say that, I don't mean I'm anti against that person, okay? What I'm, what I'm saying is God's word clearly states that that is something that is outside of his design for sexuality. And so I want to help that person get to that place where they can use God's word as a mirror and see that truth, right? But when you see someone that comes out as, as, as argument for, well, what's the problem? What if they're born that way? Well, what if they are... I actually will tell you, I believe that that's true, that that is potentially possible, that someone is born with that proclivity. I am born with a proclivity to lust after women that aren't my wife and to consume alcohol to excess. Those are my bents. Those are the areas in which I struggle most intensely. That just because that is the case for me doesn't mean it's the case for David or David or any of the two Davids sitting out here or anyone else that's sitting out here. They have other struggles that they might have. And they may have been born with that struggle. Same-sex attraction may fall. Now, I'm saying may because it's my opinion, Right? And I'm not God, and I'm not sovereign, and I don't know the truth of all these things. But from the best of my ability, it seems to me like this may be the case. That someone may be born with this proclivity towards same-sex attraction. That does not mean that we condone pursuit of that sinful behavior. Just like you wouldn't condone me lusting after women that aren't my wife, and drinking alcohol to excess, right? I hope you wouldn't condone that behavior, considering I'm a pastor or in a Christian. Okay? So if someone is born that way and says that they're born that way, I would not argue with them in that area. What I would say to them is 
Okay, we are all born because of the fall with a sinful bent. We are all born with a sinful proclivity. And what that looks like from person to person may be different. But here's what God's word says. He sent Jesus Christ, his only begotten son, to hang and die on a cross for us, to bear the burden of sin, past, present, and future, so that we can measure up against God's holiness and his, his just judgment of us. Because otherwise, none of us, none of us meet the standard. Okay? So have, look at it that way. The born this way question, it's not necessary for you to argue with the person about that. That may be the actual case. Does that make sense? Good. Okay. So now that we got that covered and reviewed, here's what God says about marriage. We're talking about marriage this week, and this applies to you if you're married, obviously, but also if you're not, but also if you're not, because if you're a Christian and people know you're a Christian, because of the atmosphere of our culture and our society and the fact that gay marriage is now a constitutional right, people may ask you questions about marriage, and you need to be prepared to give an answer. Okay? So the reason for the new normal uh, series, again, is to equip you about what God says. Questions may come from your kids. Questions may come from people you work with, family members, people on the street, whatever it is. You need to be equipped. So let's get into it. Your first fill-ins there. Marriage. He created it, and he defines it, he being God. Genesis 2.24 says, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Think about this. Back in the garden, God created man, the garden, by the garden, I mean the garden of Eden, right? God created man and then woman. He doesn't then create a government by saying, Adam, you're going to be the president, and Eve, you're going to be the vice president. Actually, in that example, what would be more accurate is Adam, you're going to be the president, and Eve, you're going to be the treasurer, right? You'll get that later, maybe. He doesn't create a church. He doesn't create a church. He creates marriage and family. It's the first social institution. God creates it. Not church, not government, marriage, family. That's what God says about marriage. Genesis 2.24. And as I said last week, he does not stutter. There's also a common misconception out there that Jesus never said anything about gay marriage, homosexual marriage. Uh, the, the argument goes, you know, Jesus never came out against gay marriage. So then it must be okay. Let's talk about that for a second. Jesus affirms God's definition of marriage along with gender, by the way, in Matthew 19, 3 through 6. <clears throat> and Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Jesus answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. So Jesus is affirming Genesis 
and the truth of that. There is no teaching in the Bible anywhere that affirms marriage as anything other than the covenant union between one man and one woman joined together by God for a lifetime. By affirming Genesis 2.24, Jesus does not have to refute every other option. So in other words, he doesn't have to, I mean, you could have a whole other book the size of War and Peace, right? Or, or the King James large print version, right, of what, what marriage isn't. But instead, Jesus affirms what is. Can I have my volunteers come up here? So some of you may know one of these five women is my wife, Sherry. Yeah, you get chairs, get chairs, get chairs. But let's say, even if you know which one is my wife, you had no idea which five of them was, is my wife. If I affirm that Sherry, the cute blonde over there at the end, is my wife, or if I say that these other four women, who are also lovely, are not my wife, do you still end up knowing who my wife is? I either point her out, or I point out who isn't my wife. Either way, you understand who I'm married to. Thank you very much, ladies. Give them a round of applause for being awesome. In Matthew chapter 19, and this is uh, your next fill in, in Matthew 19, Jesus is simply choosing to affirm the truth rather than choosing to refute or reject everything that isn't the truth. Jesus is choosing to affirm the truth. Here's what marriage is, period, dot, end of sentence, rather than refuting or rejecting everything that is not Marriage. So if someone says to you, Jesus never talked about gay marriage, he never mentioned homosexuals or anything of that nature, take them right to Matthew 19. Okay? Okay. So let's get into marriage itself a little bit here. Why does God create marriage? Why does God even create marriage? Well, there's several purposes. Number one, to reflect his image. He made two to experience oneness, just as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit enjoy oneness in their relationship. Number two, mutual completion. Male and female, mutually complete one another. He made us as distinctly different people, so we would see that we are not meant to be independent, self-sufficient people, but that we need one another. So, in other words, we're not independent, we are interdependent. Interdependent rather than independent, okay? Number three, be fruitful and multiply. God designed marriage as the ideal context for bearing and raising children. Let me talk about that for a second. In a crowd this size, there's probably someone here that either is a single parent or knows a single parent. Or maybe was raised by a single parent. And I just want to acknowledge the fact that being a single parent is extraordinarily challenging. 
extraordinarily challenging. There's no question about it. And I am not up here saying to you that if you are a single parent or were raised by a single parent, you are somehow less than. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is what God word, God's word says is that in marriage, marriage is the ideal context for raising children. Okay? How many times do you, do you have the ideal in life, but life happens? Okay? So again, please hear me. I'm not, I'm not trying to say anyone that is uh, a single parent or was raised by a single parent is less than raising children in the context of marriage between a man and a woman in a lifetime commitment to, to one another is the ideal context according to what God has to say. Let's talk about Genesis 2.18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Genesis 2 tells us how God created man and the woman and brought them together in marriage. Okay? I heard um, uh, one of my favorite speakers, his name is Ann Wilson, and uh, she's married to Dave Wilson, who is the pastor for the Detroit Lions. So he needs your prayers. Um, there's no doubt about it. But Ann Wilson said she read this and was doing a, a study on Genesis 2. She got to this verse and she looked at that and she said, I will make a helper fit for him. Where's my helper? She wanted a helper too, you know, right? She's like, where's my helper? Well, God's plan all along was that we would flourish as human beings and how we, what we work together ideally when we complete each other in the, in the, with the specific gifts that God has given us. So in other words, God looked at Adam, and as uh, Vodi Bauckham says, Vodi Bauckham's a, a pastor uh, who teaches in the art of marriage. If you've been in the art of marriage, uh, he's that really linebacker-sized African-American guy with the really like, deep voice, right? Vodi Bauckham says, uh, God looked at Adam and said, that old boy ain't gonna make it. Because God's a southerner, right? Uh, and so he created Eve as a helper for him. So God's plan all along was that we would flourish as human beings and as we learn how to die to self and learn to love and serve one another. God's plan wasn't that a man and woman would be buddies or teammates or business partners. God had designed a distinct, one-of-a-kind, committed relationship from, for the man and the woman, a lifelong covenant called marriage, where two people join together and become one flesh. Genesis 2.24, let me read that one more time. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, in that, God had three Eves for Adam. God had three Eves for Adam, and some of you are going, okay, so now we're talking about polygamy. That's not what I'm talking The first uh, Eve that, that God had for Adam was leave. Leave. You see it right there. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother. So that's your, your fill-in there. 
Leave is the first step in establishing a strong, healthy marriage to establish independence from your parents, physically, emotionally, financially, and yet still honoring your parents. Now, you can leave your parents and still honor them. There seems to be this misconception where it's like if I choose, if I shift my priority relationship in life, I'm dishonoring my parents somehow. That is not true. That is not true. There are, there are, there's an order of priority in the terms of your relationship, uh, relationships when you are a Christian, when you are a believer in Jesus as the Lord of your life. Your number one priority in your life, number one priority relationship at all time, without exception, is your relationship with God. Number one priority relationship is your relationship with God. Nothing is to come before that. If something does come before that, if you put something at a higher level of priority in your life, then your relationship with God, what's that called? It's called an idol. It's called an idol. And when you engage in idolatry, like putting something or someone or some activity at a higher level of priority in your life than your relationship with God, God is jealous of that thing, whatever it is. As a matter of fact, in Exodus, God says his name is jealous. Capital J. Okay? So we think of jealousy as being a negative thing, and very often it is. But in this case, it's a righteous jealousy. God is jealous for you, and there isn't anything that God does that isn't righteous. Right? Okay. Number two, cleave. Oh, let me say, priorities. Number one priority is your relationship with God. Number two, when you're married, is your spouse. Second only to God. And then if you have children, children come next. If you don't have children, it might be parents or that kind of thing. And, and when you have children, sometimes they have to jump up a step in priority. Okay, so for example, if Sherry and I decide that we're going to go away for a weekend... Uh, on a marriage retreat, let's say, and my son spikes 104 degree temperature. Okay, I'm not going to say, sorry, son, uh, my wife is my number one priority, and so eat some ice chips. Right? I'm gonna, I'm gonna, he's gonna jump up in terms of priority, right? But then once the emergent situation is dealt with, he goes back down to his proper position in our lives. We say that to our son often, and our son Stephen's uh, 20 years old now, but we look right at him and we say, you are the second most important person on the planet to me. And he's, at first he was like, I don't know how I should feel about that. But we explained it to him, and we explained the whole priority of relationship and all that, and someday, son, you're going to have a wife, and, and you're going to understand what we're talking about, and you're going to be able to walk that out, and so he's cool with that. He's cool with that. Okay. Okay, number two, cleave. Cleave is the second eve and the second step in establishing a strong, healthy marriage, binding yourself to a commitment to love your spouse and place your spouse's needs ahead of your own. So Ephesians chapter 5, husbands, love your wives in the same way that Christ loved the church, giving himself up for her. Okay? 
So you may have heard me say this before, but I'm going to repeat. I think it bears repeating. Is there any way that the church can sacrifice for Christ at the level that Christ sacrificed for the church? No. We cannot hang on a cross for Christ's sins, past, present, and future. A, Christ would never sin, right? B, I'm not Jesus, the Son of God, okay? The church cannot sacrifice for Jesus the way that Jesus sacrificed for us. So Christ sacrificed at a higher level for his bride than his bride could ever sacrifice for him. Make sense? So in Ephesians chapter 5, gentlemen, when we are called to love our wives the way that Christ loved the church, what do you think that means? It means that we as husbands, as the leaders, are called to give ourselves up for her in a sacrificial manner that would supersede any manner that she could give up for us. That's what it means to be the leader sometimes. That's what it means to be, as Dennis Rainey says, you know, when you're married, it's like two people riding on a horse. Somebody's got to ride in front. And God has ordained the husband to ride in front. And that comes sometimes with the benefit of being the one who sacrifices before everyone else does. Okay? So, cleaving, cleaving, Binding yourself to a commitment to love your spouse and place your spouse's needs ahead of your own. Now, wives, ladies, that doesn't mean you're off the hook, okay? But husbands, I come down hard on that because when you sacrifice for your family and for your spouse that way, for your wife, you are leading your family in a way that is rare, genuine, and really beautiful. Because when your wife sees you sacrifice that way, when your children see you sacrifice that way, they love it. They love it. There's many guys that will say, yeah, I'll jump out in front of a bullet for her, or I'd do this or that. Well, unless she's the president, chances are you're not going to have to jump in front of a bullet for her. Okay? So let's make this real. Let's make this real. You know, sacrificing for your wife sometimes means you do some things that you don't necessarily feel like doing. You know, you get up early with her so you can do a devotion. You stay up late with her so you can do a devotion. You pray over her when you're lying in bed next to her. You go to bed at the same time she does so that she knows your, she's your priority. And sometimes what that looks like, if you're a night owl, that looks like you climb into bed next to her and you pray over her, and if she's anything like Sherry, she's going to be asleep in about 30 seconds anyway. Which I love that about her. I do. But she, I mean, she's out in about, it's pillow. I've got about 30 seconds to pray and tell her I love her before she's out. And, you know, if there's a football game on late or something like that, I make sure she's squared away and I go back and do what I want to do, but I take care of her first. Right? And God bless DVR. Let me just say that. Okay. It is coming up on football season after all. All right. Third Eve. Third Eve, I need to belong. Third Eve is receive. So leave, cleave, 
receive. They all come right out of Genesis 2.24. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother, cleave unto his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Receive. The third step in establishing a strong, healthy marriage is to receive your spouse as God's perfect provision for you. Your spouse is just what you need. And sometimes that takes faith. Believing and accepting that that is true sometimes takes faith. Let's just get honest with here. I know I'm not the only one that feels this way, right? If you've been married more than about six hours, you understand what I'm talking about. Okay? So it takes faith sometimes to, to, to recognize and accept that uh, our spouse is a perfect gift from God. And look, sometimes the most loving thing that God can do for us doesn't really feel loving. You with me? If you have children, or if you've seen someone with a child in Walmart refuse to get them what it is that they wanted, right? You see the result of not of someone not feeling like they're being loved, right? But it's the most loving thing we can do sometimes that's the most painful thing for the person, okay? If, if someone wants to, if my kid wants to go out and play in traffic, I mean, is it loving for me to just let him do it? No, the most loving thing for me to do is to tell him, no way are you sniffing glue. What is your deal? Why would you want to do that, right? I mean, it's loving to do that. So a good God gives us good gifts, right? And if you have faith that God has provided you with your spouse, and you understand the nature of God, the character of God, you understand he's good, holy, and he would give you nothing but good gifts. Even when she's more like a porcupine, than something that would be nice and cuddly, right? Even when she's more like sandpaper than silk, even when he, keeps saying she, I guess that's because I'm a male, um, but even when he, ladies, is, is sometimes he just, you know, mm, I don't want to follow him, all these things. Sometimes that sandpaper is God lovingly sanding down and softening your sharp edges. And so receive your spouse as a gift from God in that way. And understand that even though sometimes it's hard, it's hard, right? God is a good God, and he gives good gifts, and he does what's loving for you, even when it doesn't necessarily feel that way. Okay? Okay. When marriages are not thriving, you can almost always trace the problem back to a failure on the part of one or both spouses to either leave, cleave, or receive. You have a choice, though. And look, I don't have time to get into it a whole lot here, but you have a choice on what to do. Again, if you've been married more than about six weeks, you understand that you cannot change your spouse. You can only change you. And those of you who are not married, you know this is true. 
You've tried maybe to change coworkers. You've tried to change siblings. You've tried to change, you know, your dad and, and the, the fact that he wears socks and sandals, right? And you can't, sorry if anyone's wearing socks and sandals. You can't change somebody else though. The only person you can change is you. So you have to make the decision. You have a choice to receive and embrace your spouse as a gift from God or just accept and that you're, you know, okay, I'm married for this person, I have to deal with them. You can't change what they're gonna do. You can't change how they respond. You can't change how they don't respond. All you can do is change how you do things. And let me just tell you, write this down if it applies to you. First Peter 3. First Peter 3 addresses a woman, and in this example, it's a woman, but it applies the other direction as well. A woman that's married to a male, a man who's a non-believer. And in 1 Peter 3, she's instructed to stay married to that man, that he might be won over to Christ by her countenance. So what that means is you have the power in focusing on you and being more Christ-like and changing the way that you look at things and the way that you interact with your spouse and others around you, you, may, you wield that influence with the countenance of Christ to potentially win them over to him. And even if they're already a believer, you may win them over to God's word, what God's word says about whatever scenario it happens to be. Okay? But you have the choice to do this. And you, you can't look at me and say, I can't do it because she's not. I can't do it because he's not. Because homie don't play that. I am not going to take that as a response. Wow, I feel bold. Nobody has any idea what homie don't play that means. Okay, homie to clown, anyone? Okay. You have a 100% responsibility for what it is that God expects of you regardless of what your circumstances are. So even if your circumstances are such that your spouse is a drunk, alcoholic, prescription or drug abusing, adulterer living with his girlfriend, you still have the responsibility to become everything that God expects you to be as a godly wife and pursue what that means, regardless of what your circumstances are. And let me just tell you, if you don't already know, that's my story. That's my story. I was all those things. Okay? And Sherry, that's the most powerful part of our testimony. In the midst of that mess, Sherry chose to pursue God and become the woman and the wife and the mother that God expects her to be, designed her to be, and wants her to be even in the midst of those terrible circumstances. So you have that responsibility. And that applies in marriage, and it's an expectation that applies to you even if you're not married. Jesus, God, expects you to behave that way with coworkers, with difficult family members, even with a guy who won't get out the left hand lane on seven. Now I'm preaching. And if you're that guy, I will forgive you after service. All right. Why is marriage hard? Real quick. Genesis number three. 
or Genesis chapter 3. Quick review of God's plan. God made marriage to reflect his image, mutually complete one another, be fruitful and multiply, and he gave us the game plan in order to do how to do that. Leave, cleave, and receive. So why is marriage so hard? Why is walking this out so hard? Well, what comes after Genesis chapter 2? <laughs> Genesis chapter 3. Good. Awesome. All right. We are with it. As soon as the wedding is over in Genesis 2, as soon as the plan for marriage is laid out, Satan comes to the man and to the woman in the form of a serpent, and he convinces them that they should ignore what it is that God has said and go their own way instead. Let's watch this video illustration of Genesis 3. We got that? Open eyes. 
she said. What's wrong with that? Maybe my man and I were born for this. Born to know, born to control, born to rule. She swallowed hard and it was done. She gave some to her covenant partner, Adam. He opened his mouth and gobbled it down, and the universe was silent. It was the cool part of the day, and God was walking. Walking through the land he made, his ecosystem so magnificently put together, about to erode, about to implode before his sad and timeless eyes. He took one long last look and kissed the innocents. Probably attest at least to some degree 
to a time in their lives where they felt isolated, they felt alone, they felt like nobody cared, they felt like nobody was going through what it is that they were going through, and if they had gone through it before, they wouldn't understand their specific circumstances, and that spiral of diminishment and discouragement that leads to deeper and deeper isolation. The enemy runs very few plays, really, but he runs them very effectively. And isolation is, is his number one tool. And I'm not bringing this up as a plug or anything. Obviously, we're not selling anything. But at the end of this month, at the bridge, we're doing something called Group Link. And Group Link is the on-ramp to life groups here at the bridge. So you should not try to do life alone. When you try to do life alone, you end up isolated. And when you end up isolated, it sounds like one of those commercials now, right? <laughs> when you try to do life alone, you end up isolated. When you're isolated, you end up with, I don't remember what the thing is, but don't do life alone. Don't end up isolated. Don't let the enemy get a hold of you that way. Come to Group Link August 30th here at the Bridge Princeton. Um, I believe it starts at 5 o'clock. You get more details at bridgechurch.cc. So how do we get relationships and marriage? How do we do it right? So instead of getting God to agree to our plan and then asking him to bless it, what if we got on God's plan and blessed him by following That's good right there. You want to write that down. What if we got on God's plan and blessed him by following him? See, if you think of the cross, pretty think of a cross, picture the cross, maybe, maybe you're thinking about you know, the cross on Calvary's Hill, or maybe it's the cross on the top of the steeple out here, or whatever, just think of a cross. If you don't have the vertical part of the cross solidly planted, firmly planted in the ground, attached to the steeple, whatever it is, whatever example you're thinking of, if that is not firmly planted and attached the way that it's designed to be, supposed to be, the horizontal part of the cross cannot be supported the way that it needs to be. So why am I saying that? I'm saying that because if this relationship, if your relationship this way, is not, and listen to me when I say right. What I mean by that is not some kind of legalistic, I've got to jump through all the right hoops. That's not what we're talking about. That's not what we're talking about. I'm talking about you are in relationship with God by making Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior, and you're pursuing Him, and you're allowing Him into all aspects of your life including your sexuality, including your attitude, including your politics and your finances and all those things. You're letting him in to every single aspect of your life. That's what it means to have him as the Lord of your life. He's the Lord. He rules over you. And so he has control of every aspect of your life. But if you're not in that position where you're constantly seeking to become more like Christ, more Christ-like, by making him more and more the Lord of your life, by allowing him into deeper and deeper corners of your heart, then this relationship is not the way it needs to be. It's not where it needs to be. 
And if this relationship is not where it needs to be, it cannot support these relationships. My relationship with David, with Pat, with Mitchell, with my wife, with my son, with my coworkers, with the people in my sphere of influence, and Lord help me with the guy that won't get out of the left hand lane. It won't be right. It won't be right. So that's where I'm going to land the plate with you guys tonight. Because everything that we've talked about, everything you're going to hear us talk about in the bridge, at the bridge, is built on this premise. For your relationships with others within your sphere of influence to be healthy, for your marriage to be strong and healthy, your relationship with your children to be right, on and on and on, your relationship with God has to be strong and healthy first. So that's your last fill-in. In order for my relationships with the people around me to be right, my relationship with God has to be right. Receiving Christ involves turning from God to self. That's called or to God from self. That's called repentance. And trusting Christ to come into our lives to forgive us of our sins and to make us who and what he wants us to be. And listen to me. Just to agree in your mind that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and he died on the cross for our sins, that's not enough. It's not enough. It's also not enough to have, uh, just to have a, an emotional experience. We must receive Jesus Christ by faith as an act of our will and then learn what it means to, as Paul said, in his letter to the Philippians, work out our salvation with fear and tremble. You have to learn what that means. So here's how we're going to land the plane tonight. Everybody stand with me. And if you're able. I'm going to lead us in a prayer. Um, and maybe you've prayed this kind of prayer before. Maybe not. Maybe you have, but you need to rededicate yourself. Maybe you're here and you've never made a decision to make Jesus the Lord of your life. I don't know. I don't know where you're at. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what you're struggling with. I know you're struggling with something. Because you're breathing. Let's say this prayer together. Everybody just bow your heads and say this prayer with me. And again, if, if, you've, if you've dedicated your life to Christ, it is not going to hurt you to say this prayer again. And just reaffirm that he is the Lord of your life. But if you've never said this before, and you want to make this decision tonight, say this prayer from the deepest depths of your heart, and then talk to someone. Come up afterwards. I will talk with you about what your next step is. That is the key. The next, what you do next is the key. So let's say this together. Lord Jesus, I need you. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. I open the door of my life. And I receive you as Savior and Lord. Thank you for forgiving my sins and giving me eternal life. Take control of the throne of my life and make me the person you want me to be. Amen.